there's still times where, you know, I don't sleep or where my suffering feels really great, but I now know that those medications, what they ended up doing to my body and the degree of suffering I had to go through just to get off of them, I would have never chosen that. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 507 with guest Melissa Bond. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. We have another thrilling and exciting interview for you today around recovery. This one is especially interesting. So I have two around the same topic. This one from Melissa Bond and then one coming up soon from my friend Lauren Cathcart-Robbins, who's been on the show before both about benzo addictions, specifically Ambien. As someone who's been prescribed Ambien two different times, uh, let me me just let these stories speak for themselves. All right. One thing I want to make sure that you are reminded about is the one-on-one sessions that I am offering up for $97. That price has never existed since at least 10 years. Uh, 25 spots I opened up. Most of them are taken, but if you want one, and a couple of you have DM'd me, it's fine if we've worked together before. I would love to have you see you on my roster again, get an update and see how I can see how I can support you. But it doesn't necessarily have to be about what I talk about on that page, andreaowen.com slash one, O-N-E. And it's a really simple page over there. Just tells you like what to expect, what kind of challenges you might be facing that this session would be great for. And then you just sign up there. You fill out a quick questionnaire so I know what we're both walking into, what you want to walk away with, and we'll go from there. I'm excited to get to um, – We I start tomorrow. I think I start with these sessions. So I'm really excited to get on these. All right. If I sound like I sound, if I sound like I'm under the weather, I had to go kind of cold turkey on some my ADHD medication that I've been on for, I don't know, six, eight months. My blood pressure, you guys, got so high. I have a history of chronic hypertension that has been better for so many years, unmedicated. And I wasn't feeling all that great. And I went to the dentist. <laughs> I don't know why they check my blood pressure at the dentist. Do they do that when you get a teeth cleaning? I saw it first and I was like, whoa, that's not good. And they were like, no, well, let's take it again. Because it was so high. They were like, there's no way that's right. It was. I wasn't all that surprised. So I took it at home later that night and it was 189 over 114. I was like, oh, that's bad. That's bad. So I call my doctor. She's like, immediately now, <laughs> you need to get off your the ADHD meds. And uh, if you've never... Uh, even tapered off of uh, an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication, uh, consider yourself lucky because it is not an easy thing to do. And they, 
they had to get me off it very quickly because of my blood pressure. Anyway, two days of tapering and it's been the most unpleasant, but I just like an all, anyway, I won't get into it. I'm not here to complain. I'm not here to complain. I am here to bring you really amazing guests like we have today. And Melissa Bond is no exception. Her book is so good. And just the story. All right, let me tell you a little bit about her. Melissa Bond is a narrative journalist and poet. In the years of her dependence on benzos, the whole word is spelled out there in the bio, but I don't I don't know how to pronounce that. So it's just going to be benzos. Melissa blogged and became a regular contributor for Mad in America. ABC World News Tonight interviewed her for a piece in January 2014. Melissa is a respected writer on the perils of over-prescribing benzos and has been featured on PBS Story in the Public Square, Radio West, and many, many, many other places. Blood Orange Night, which is her book, was published by Simon & Schuster in June 2022. So without further ado, here is Melissa. (laughs) Melissa, thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh. It is an absolute delight to be here with you. Oh, I'm so glad. This is my podcast voice. Hello, <laughs> podcast voice. We were talking and, and giggling and um, just reminiscing over old addictions and things like that. And and so you don't know this, but I do my podcast in themes now and where we had a women's health theme and we had a therapy theme and now we're on recovery. So thank you so much for for being here and and talking about your story and and your book, Blood Orange Night. Can you start by telling us like, like start kind of from the beginning. Like when did you kind of when did it kind of become quote unquote bad? Like was there did you get prescribed your benzos for like a illness or something? How did it start? It started with my second pregnancy. So I had late stage pregnancy. I was like what they considered geriatric and I had my son when I was how old was I? 39. Mm-hmm. And he was born with Down syndrome. And then I immediately got pregnant again, which I thought was impossible because I was, you know, geriatric, yeah. but I fertile. Um, however, the second pregnancy, there was this sort of tsunami of personal events that happened. So I'm, we all have those times in our lives when we're like, holy bejesus, what's happening? And I can't take another thing. Yeah. I can't take another thing. And for me, it was son being born with a disability. Mm-hmm. He has Down syndrome. Losing my beloved job as a magazine editor because of the recession. Actually, it's four. <laughs> oh, so this had happened like around 08. All of this was in was in like 08, 09. Oh, okay. Just a grim time for everybody, you know. So there's like financial stress. My marriage was already crumbling, and I literally, you know, we were like a year in. And so I was trying not to face that. Mm-hmm. And I literally stopped sleeping. So okay. That was when I was prescribed Ambien, which uh-huh. I did, had no idea was was addictive. They were just like, oh my gosh, you are going to have a psychotic break. You are not sleeping. I was sleeping like an hour a night, maybe two. Yeah. And then after my daughter was born, I cold turkeyed. And then they prescribed a, a month in, I was literally like clawing at the walls again. Yeah. And they prescribed Ativan and that was the start. So it's, you know, it's weird. It's like, I don't know what it was for you, but we all have those times mm. where we know like, yeah, that's when I fell into the hole. So <laughs> I don't know if that, what that was like for you. Well, you know? yeah, I was, you know, I, I had my friend, Laura Cathcart Robbins on who her predominant drug of choice was, was Ambien. And it was similar, you know, she had two small kids and just wasn't sleeping very well and, and ended up being prescribed it and fell in love with it. I, I just, 
what I was saying when I, when she was on my show was that, you know, anybody who identifies as being an anxious person, which I think even if you aren't that person, but you have a marriage that's on the rocks, you have a child with a disability, then get immediately pregnant again, which can already mess with your hormones and your mental health. And then, and you're in that recession that will bring on the anxiety. And my point is this from, in my experience, benzos, and it was, you know, Percocet, Vicodin, Ambien I've, I've taken, but for me, it was Valium and Ativan, but like Valium for me was the thing that I could, if I could be in a relationship with just one thing, <laughs> I don't need food. I don't need water. Just give me Valium. Cause it just, it just softened those edges so much where I felt like nothing could bother me. Just yeah, everything was yeah. just okay. Yeah. I call it. I call it the pharmaceutical hammer because it absolutely, and, and, and that's a pretty aggressive term, but I think because for me, Ativan was the one they prescribed me and it literally, mm-hmm. it just knocked me out when, when the doctor, so the, the name I give the doctor that prescribed these to me is Dr. Amazing because he was, when I walked, honestly, when I walked into his office, he was both a Western, you know, medical MD family practice doc, and then also really, really build himself as being this allopathic, you know, um, very interested in like holistic herbs and other modalities, Chinese medicine, uh-huh. you know, to get to the root cause of, of dis-ease is how he, he sort of pitched it. So it felt like he was somebody that was very much like, let's, let's look at this from a holistic standpoint. And boy, when I got there, he was just like, oh, you know, you've got something going on with your adrenals, but you have got to sleep. So I'm going to give you something that sounded like it was benign and that like, you know, like Valium, we think of it as like, oh, this is just mother's little helper. It's uh-huh. a sort of soft softening of everything. But the Ativan is the like supercharged steroidal version of Valium. And it literally like knocked me out for seven hours the first night. And and I do have to say, like, here, so here's one of the questions I have, like, these are so widely prescribed mm-hmm. and I had never heard of them, but it feels like we live in this age of things moving so fast. I really wonder how people and, and what your thoughts are on like why these drugs are so widely prescribed because, we, you know, we're, we're in this age of anxiety. We, I, it feels like we need something yeah. to simmer down. Yeah. And we go to the pill, right? Or we're often prescribed the pill. Yeah. And, and it's for me now, I'm not on anything to help me sleep except melatonin. And, and I also take magnesium and I, I guess that helps a little bit. It's it's mostly just so I can like go poop. Like, (laughs) like another topic for another theme on this podcast. I know now that it's really what everybody says, like you have to have good sleep hygiene. Like it's all about your, your phone and just having this routine, like all the things that the experts say, pills are an easy fix though. I also think, cause this is what I learned in my, my other interview too, is that it tends to not break us down physically. And it's all like this neurological stuff that's happening that we don't see until you're having seizures or you're having like major withdrawals and did any of that happen to you? I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, no. So let's jump ahead because the question that, you know, it was so weird because I had been, 
magazine writer and magazine editor. And so research was like in my bones. Like I mm-hmm. loved to find out about stuff and I would get assignments, but I was so desperate after basically like a year of sleeping, maybe two to three hours a night. Oh my gosh. It's torture. It was torture. Like I think the CIA describes enhanced interrogation techniques as going 45 or 48 hours without sleep. And I was like, yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's about right. Because at that point I would do anything. What happened was I was so desperate. I didn't even look the medication up. And, and then the cognitive decline was so rapid mm. because I ended up within, they cycle really fast. The new generation of benzodiazepines, which are Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin. They're okay. super fast in, super fast out, which is why I call them the hammer. Like they knock you out really fast. You don't get like a smooth buzz. Mm-hmm. I hate to say that like with Valium. It's just, that's a softer benzo. Equally, you know, dangerous, I think, long-term. But so what happened was my brain was just becoming what they call withdrawal tolerance. I was in tolerance, but I was starting to have withdrawals. So I would stop sleeping. So so Dr. Amazing bumped my dose up two milligrams within the first six weeks. So I was up to four milligrams of Ativan, which is- Holy shit. Within six months, he had bumped me up to six milligrams of Ativan to be taken nightly, doctor prescribed- And at that point, so it's six milligrams in one pill, right? And you have an entire bottle. It's, it was like two milligrams per pill. And I was three pills a night, big bottle. So for reference, people who have no idea, when I was prescribed Ativan, which I was kind of surprised when you said Ativan, but my prescription was only for a half a milligram per pill. And it was one I was prescribed. Yeah. it's. I was like, meh, it's, it's okay. Uh, if you go to the ER and you're having a grand mal seizure, they will shoot you up with two milligrams of Ativan. That's how powerful it is. It okay. will stop a grand mal seizure too. So to have started me on two milligrams was just nuts, but I think it happens more often than we think it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I don't have statistics on that because it's very hard to get information on like exactly what the prescriptions are in this country. But so what happened was within six months, I had lost 20% of my body weight. I couldn't remember what somebody had said to me from one day to the next. I had two infants. So I was like, okay. One with Down syndrome who needs special attention. Oh my gosh. All of that. And so to go to the grocery store and remember, like I would, I would, I would write down a list of things to go to get at the grocery store. And then I would forget where I put the list. So I was literally like clawing at the edges of the day, trying to just survive. And what happened? Okay. So, so I've got my little girl, she's like a year and a half old. She's in the tub. She, I've given her a bath, you know, we're having this sweet little playtime. She's just the cutest little thing ever. I p- pick her up, wrap her in a little froggy towel and I'm walking out the door. And if, and my husband, of course, it is outside. He's a landscaper. He's doing stuff outside was um, very, very checked out already at this point. He, his bandwidth for any kind of illness or emotional need was pretty limited. Okay. So at this point, I've sort of already felt like I was alone in the house uh-huh. and I took a step and they call it jelly legs. There's an actual term for it where the, the neurotransmitter that goes and says, Oh, okay. This body is taking a step and we need to have muscle contraction. It just, it just doesn't happen. Uh-huh. 
Because the the benzos are suppressing 70% of communication with the neurotransmitters. So I'm holding my baby girl, you know, barely any hair on her head. And we are careening towards a corner wall because my legs have stopped working. So I flip my shoulder and I ram ram my sh- like shoulder and head into the corner wall to protect her. And I'm lying there and I think this, okay, I finally am like, I'm not just mama sunk. I'm not just exhausted. Something is wrong. And I'm lying there and I think, oh, I've got a brain tumor. I've got to have a brain tumor. Like all of these symptoms, like the lack of balance, the lack of memory, the, the eye tremors. And then I was like, no, maybe I've got MS. And this was the moment of grace. We were talking about moments of grace earlier, mm-hmm. which I know you have, but I th- suddenly was like, wait, what has changed me from being a really vital, like career-minded, rock climbing, adventuring woman to someone conscious. who can- <laughs> yeah. I'm able to go to the grocery store and remember right. what I picked up? What changed? And I was like, it's the medication. Okay. So you did have that moment. Had that moment. 30 seconds later, my legs just like the light came back on and they were working. And I just thought, what is happening to me? So that, yeah. (sighs) So that was the scary point, you know? And I think, Uh yeah, I know you've had yours. Oh, okay. I have so many questions and I'm, I'm thinking of the audience right now of, of someone who might be in that place of, the marriage is is kind of crumbling. They might be feeling overwhelmed, whether it's b- because they are the mother of small children or they have a job that is asking more of them than they have the bandwidth to to follow through with, or a, a relationship that's struggling, maybe with a parent or something like that. And I think for for a time, you know, whether it's drinking too much wine at night or using, whether it's a benzo or um, you know, sleep aids and things like that. It works for a while, right? <laughs> it ah, helps. Right. And then, so do you think that, do you, ha- did you have any moments previous to that one where you fell and could have seriously injured your daughter? Did you have any moments before that where you were thinking, maybe this isn't okay? Or were you fully on board of like, well, if he's prescribing it, then it must be okay. I, I, you know, that's such a great question because I think we're always navigating, you know, our, our suffering and then what is kind of helping us, you know, sort of deal with that suffering mm-hmm. And for me. And this is, I, I think this is the question that I, I'm always interested in with the people, you know, that your podcast is reaching and anyone that's out there, like, how do we navigate what's okay in terms of how we work through our suffering in this world, you yeah. know? And, and especially when we get to those points, like for me, it was so acute. And th- the fact that I could barely make it through each day and I was, you know, terrified that I would do something that would put my kids at risk. Sure. Like, I, you know, my son with um, Down syndrome, like he would g- get out the door and run down the middle of the street. So I always had to be vigilant. Like, are the doors locked? Is the gate shut? you know, have I, have I gotten the things that they need? Are they, you know, have they fallen down the stairs and maybe Mm -hmm. checked out or something? And so for me, I don't think there was ever a time where I thought, well, I'm trading like this for being able to sleep. It really felt like I was so desperate just to get up to like baseline survival mode. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what like, for me now, what has become the question is, 
how do we help people when when the the suffering is that acute? Mm-hmm. And then how do we sort of navigate in the most intelligent way possible into a, a more holistic and more wellness based recovery? Yeah. You know, because there's still times where, you know, I don't sleep or where my suffering feels really great, but I now know that those medications, what they ended up doing to my body and the degree of suffering I had to go through just to get off of them, I would have never chosen that. And part of that is, is just the intelligence of the medical community and informed consent. You know, like there are lots of people out there that are just trying to survive. And if they are prescribed that and it helps them for a while and they're not given another option or they're not told. Of course you're going to say yes. Of course you're going to say yes. And if, if you don't know, Hey, these things are like radically addictive in the space of a week. If you don't know that, or if you don't know what that means long term, Mm -hmm. you're going to say like, heck yeah. I mean, I might even still take the risk if I'm not desperate, at least tell me like, what should I look for? Or should I tell one of my friends or my partner or my boss, like what to look for, you know what I mean? Like those types of things. Well, one one of the things that I always tell people with what I learned was that we're very familiar about if you take too many opioids, it's going to be really dangerous. You can stop breathing and, Uh you know, die and it's fatal. With benzos, we haven't had that awareness. And the way I describe it is that opioids are the drug that set fire to your house. Uh You know, and that's, that's, that's the mortality. Like you can, you can literally like just stop breathing, but benzos are the thief that take everything you own a piece at a time. Uh And, And when you ask for what to look for, that's what I mean is I started having all of these really intense neurological GI muscular symptoms that I could have gone to a million other doctors to try to track down. And they were all related to the benzos. So it's like a slow, well, depending on how much you're taking and what Uh happens, you slide into disability. And so I would, the thing that I would say is like, for me, those are like the last ditch only for a couple of days kinds of things, because they can slowly, your memory starts to really, you have whiteout, you have an anterior grade amnesia. You can have really, really bad stomach cramps or GI issues and, and neurological symptoms. So, yes, I don't, I also don't envy doctors, you know, having to prescribe that and having definitely not long enough appointment with someone. Yeah, <laughs> to understand their history. What other doctors are you seeing? Um, what's your history with with medications or addiction? And what is your support system at home? Like, there's so many variables that need to be talked about. And then I don't know. I would worry too much about my patients. <laughs> Call them. Are you okay? <laughs> Which they'd probably lie if they're not okay, especially right. if they're someone who's prone to to addiction. And so, well, tell us the moment that you knew that something was wrong. So was it that moment of like being on the floor when your legs gave out? Did you, did you check yourself into rehab? Like what, what ended up happening? I, so I, I, I want to give you two scenes. So the, that's the first scene from the book where I, where I was oh. just like, holy cow, what is wrong with me? Like, this is not normal parenting exhaustion. And you know, there's that, that space of denial too, of how bad things are. Yeah. My marriage is crumbling. I've got two kids. Like I've lost my beloved career as a magazine editor. Who am I? So, you know, I'm like going through this like identity crisis along with 
you know, trying to just keep, keep the boat from sinking. That was the scene with my daughter. And then I went upstairs and started researching benzos and my jaw fell to the floor. And that's when I was like, oh my God, I have got to get off these things. Mm -hmm. But all the research that I saw, and actually these occur really close together, the two scenes I'm going to describe in the book. So that was the first one. I do the research. I find out you've got to go really, really slow, or you can have a psychotic break or a fatal seizure. So, and really slow means like a cut, you know, like cutting a very, very tiny amount. So, so that night I cut a little bit off of one of my pills. And I was like, totally determined, like, okay, I I'm going to like slowly withdraw off these things. This was back in 2011, I think. And there mm -hmm. were not, there still are not a lot of facilities that know how to really get people off of benzodiazepines safely because it's a very long-term process. It's not like other withdrawal processes. It can take upwards of a year, if not longer. So but I, I was still on my learning curve and I was yeah. just, so I kind of DIY. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I wake up and it's the middle of the night after I've cut my first pill, my daughter's crying. You know, I do the like mama wolf. Oh my gosh, what's happening. I think mm -hmm. she, she needs, you know, to nurse run downstairs, put my hands underneath her little, you know, she's got this little bread loaf body. And all of the sudden I have this explosion of like sound neon oranges and reds. And I just completely collapse to the carpet and pass out. And we find out later that I have had a stroke. Oh my God. That, that was my first experience with withdrawal. And then it was this long, um, and then the rest of the book sort of talks about like this kind of come to Jesus moment of holy cow, I've been on these drugs for maybe a year now, doctor prescribed, and I go through a, a series of doctors and they don't know how to get me off. Oh no. So then figuring out, like finding the person, finding the information and getting the support to be able to like, because there's not really a rehab center. They can they can sort of get you to the point where you're not going to have a fatal seizure, mm -hmm. but you will still likely have withdrawals that could last over a year. How long do you think it took before you started to feel quote unquote normal again? I would say 14 months. You know, I like to ask you coaching questions that are powerful and I want you to answer this one for yourself. I deserve a sex life that is, and then you fill in the blank. Maybe it's something like deserve a sex life that takes its time, that is steamy, that is on my terms, whatever it is, it's yours. And Dipsy can help you get there in new and sexy ways. You guys know how much I love Dipsy. They are an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. That is very important. New content is released every single week. So in between listening to your favorite stories, sometimes you might listen to some again and again. You can always find something new to explore. They also have sleep stories, wellness sessions, and uh, sexy stories that you can read, which I know a lot of people absolutely love. For listeners of this show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash kickass. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash kickass, dipsystories.com slash kickass. And I'm kind of like switching gears here a little bit, but I, I remember when I got your your book in the mail and the subtitle really jumped out at me in my journey to the edge of madness. And I, I feel like madness is such a strong 
word to to use and i'm i'm actually reading a novel right now that's set like in in europe i think in england like right after world war 1 and they use the term mad a lot you know yeah. and they're it centers around like these soldiers who are in this kind of like asylum and they throw that word around a lot and it has such a um a shame connotation to it i think it, in in the context of um you know across the pond over there but but what was that word i, mean, I know that subtitles are chosen very carefully <laughs> so what was that for you like talk talk to us about the madness like how do you describe that i love that you asked this because it was such a it was such a tough point for me this mm-hmm. was chosen by my editor okay and i was like oh do we really have to go there <laughs> did you it know, feel I- like too much truth or something else I think it was a truth that I had not yet been willing to admit to, you know, because mental health, you know, it's interesting, any kind of addiction, dependency, recovery, mental health issues, we're still navigating the shame that circumscribed those things, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think for me to admit that I had completely lost my squash for a long period of time was really hard. Mm -hmm. And the turning point, it was so funny. I talked with my brother and I was like, so Chris, this is the subtitle they want to use, My Journey to the Edge of Madness. And I was like, it feels really kind of strong to me. It's a when little he, dramatic. <laughs> it's pretty dramatic. And he was like, well, he calls me Mouse. That's my, okay. <laughs> <they're> really small. <laughs> he says, Mouse, you didn't sleep. Basically, like you were CIA interrogation level sleeping for over a year. Don't you think you had like completely lost any grip on reality? And I said, you know what? Yeah, of Mm -hmm. course. Like I was in an alternate reality for a long time and every possible part of me that felt unstable was just raw and pulsing like an electric wire. So totally. So, but to admit that, like it took me, I had to kind of process through because I not only didn't, I not want to admit that I had gotten really dependent upon these doctor prescribed drugs, but I didn't want to admit that I had lost my squash. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, the cheese was sliding off the cracker. It was terrible. And I think it's a beautiful thing. Don't you to just get to that place of just raw vulnerability and like, wow, I didn't even know how to be human at that point. Yeah. I think it's a special place of surrender. Yeah. I know that's a big word that's used in the rooms of recovery. And I have the word tattooed on my arm because I think we fight it as hard as we possibly can with every strength of our being. And especially, and I don't mean especially that we're chosen or better or anything like that, but for high achieving women who kind of come up in this place of our value is put so much on our productivity and efficiency and how well we can balance everything and like keep the plates spinning to, to admit that you dropped them all and <laughs> you can't pick them up and put the pieces back together anymore. Like that is so incredibly vulnerable. And like you said, like raw and naked and yeah, it is a special place of surrender to admit like this, this is no way to live. I cannot do this by myself anymore. Like this has become bigger than me from a mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical standpoint. 
And for the love of God, somebody help me. Like that, like my hat's off to anybody who gets to that place. And I say a special prayer for you because it it's a, an extraordinarily difficult place to be. Yeah. And I, I think what I want to add to that, and I love the way you described all of that, because I, I think for me, because I had been raised and I talk about this in the book also, I had been raised by an alcoholic mom Mm -hmm. who had tried to do all of that and had had the plates come crashing down really through most of my middle school and then high school years. And then she went into recovery when I was 17. Okay. And I had made the un- kind of unconscious decision that I was not going to be like her. Mm-hmm. I was going to constantly be aware of any kind of addictive patterns and really look towards, you know, I tried to do all the wellness stuff when I was younger, you know, studied Jung, studied shamanism, like did all the things, but didn't really address the fact that I was trying to like escape that vulnerability somehow. Yeah. And so for me, what this whole experience, one of the main gifts that I would say is that I had a kind of hubris, like I had this kind of ego around, I'm going to be better. I'm not going to fall prey to the kind of vulnerability that I couldn't even understand at that age. She was also a single mom raising two kids, Yeah, you know? And I, when this all happened, I thought, what a jerk I've been. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Like really? A single mom, you know, and I just thought, oh my gosh, I get it. It is so, and to be in that state of like heart softening, mm-hmm. you know, is just, it It was the hardest thing I've ever been through, but it has tenderized my heart in a way I don't think anything else has. Yeah. You know, to fall to my knees that way and then recognize other people that have fallen in that kind of vulnerability and humanity that comes out of it. Yeah. I mean, oh God. And it's two really big things that you're talking about, you know, your own sort of surrender and and just watching the plates fall and just kind of putting your hands up and being like, well, there they go. And you know, I was just writing, I'm working on my own memoir and I was writing about this last night about my dad. I don't know how, if we talk enough about the grief that comes with the moment or moments we realize that our parents are human and incredibly flawed and that they have a whole life that doesn't revolve around us. (laughs) And they are also susceptible to the pains and slings and arrows of life. And, and they had a whole life before we were born. And, and I know it sounds maybe even a little trite and selfish that I say that, but I think, and, and, and I think some people, I want to acknowledge this. Some people learn that about their parents far too young. They see things that children should never see and they bear things and have to grow up entirely too quickly. And regardless, though, I think there's so much grief in seeing our parents as like three-dimensional human beings. I remember, and this was, my dad died in 2016 and it was sort of like a gut punch to be like, oh, he he had a whole whole identity of not being Andrea's dad. Like, <laughs> And I felt like such an asshole. Like, like, of course he did. But I think it's so much safer for us to just kind of look at our parents as just our mom or just our dad or, you know, just our sibling and and have them just kind of in a way like this one-dimensional life. And so it's a journey when we see them in another, in all, in all their humanity. 
Yeah. And I have to say, so, so we both have kids now, mm-hmm. right? So seeing it from their vantage, my daughter is 13. My son is 14. And I am seeing now, like my daughter has had to, her dad and I divorced when she was four. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's, you know, had to have some aspects of her growing up that I think I would not choose for her right. now that she's had to be raised. But she also, I, I see, like, I'm still, she's 13, so I'm still sort of on the pedestal, mm-hmm. but it's going to topple soon. I know that. And, but I think it's also like, I I look at that and I think well, this is part of their brain development. And it's part of like, what's healthy is them being able to kind right. of project this like immune were these immovable objects of security and, you know, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I know for me, part of me wanting to give her that stability was the fact that from a really early age, I didn't have that, you know, yeah. my kind of being raised was this constant instability, which has its gifts now, but took me a long time to kind of get to. Yeah, it's tricky. And I get parenting questions every once in a while if I do a Q&A or something. And I'm like, I am not a parenting expert. I can just tell you what's worked for me and what's not worked. But it's just sort of like feeding scraps along the way of like your own humanity. But yeah, we do want to like be that consistent person and just be sort of on that pedestal and complicated balance. I think one that we all get wrong. <laughs> we all get wrong all the time, all the time. I thought it was so funny. My my children were aghast when they found out that I had been married before to someone else before they were born. So I was married before and I didn't have children with this person. But so it's like, why would they ever need to know, right? They don't have any half siblings or anything. And I remember we were in the car. I don't remember how it came up, but I mentioned, you know, it's like I was married to someone else before I was married to your dad. And my son, I was looking at him in the rearview mirror and he goes, to who? Like, just the it, just incredulous. Like, like, what? Like, I think they think we were born and then just automatically like became their mother <laughs> or the wife. Like, because their narrative, that's when their narrative starts. Right. That is totally when their narrative starts. Yeah. It cracked me up, but also made me so curious. And I'm like, yeah. And I've done that to my own parents as well. So yeah, we got off track here. And I'm curious, so do you identify as an, as an addict? I, you know, I don't. And I, I want to say more about that. Because yeah. Cause I know there's a lot of, the reason I ask is I know there's a lot of people listening who, who don't identify as addicts, but, but might be able to see themselves absolutely in your shoes. Yeah. I think, so there are a couple of things I want to say about it. And I'm so, this is like such a beautiful question because when I was growing up, I was very, you know, I was like, okay, mom is an addict. She's mm-hmm. like self-proclaimed, like, yes. She's like, I love alcohol. I love cocaine. And she's off, you know, has recovered and, and you know, has other addictions that kind of come in and out that are healthier. But um, she was very much like, yes, I'm an addict, went into recovery, not going there ever again. Mm-hmm. And I had said to myself, I will never go there. I will do everything I can to kind of research, to do my own, you know, psychological journey, you know, philosophical texts. I, you know, practice meditation from the time I was in my early twenties. So really felt like I'd kind of inoculated myself through my own self, you know, processing. Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden I'm completely hooked on Ativan, right? Yeah. And what I will say is it's, you know, I, um, 
the reason I say I'm not an addict is it feels like I want it to be a grayer area actually than I'm presenting because I hate this. You're either an addict or you're not because I feel definitely on team like gray area. There is such a gray area. Such a gray area because there's the way I describe it is there is suffering. Like we all have, whether Mm -hmm. it's me, it was insomnia or there's psychic suffering. There's emotional suffering that we don't know how to deal with. There are reasons we go towards those things that help give us a salve to our suffering. And that is how I view addiction. And, and I, so I feel like in this culture, we have to ask the question of like, what even is addiction and how to, how do we other the people that we see as addicts in this culture? Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, that's not me. Right. I do that, which is exactly what I did with my mom. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I'm not her, I'm better. Yeah. I'm still being young, you know, mm-hmm. I'm learning meditation so I don't become like you. And I missed her humanity in that. I missed the fact that she was a single mom, you know, with not a lot of support, trying to raise two kids, didn't know how to do it. And when I say I'm not an addict, it's mostly that with, with the Ativan, there was no part of me that was taking it to try and like, alter my, I don't know, consciousness to get a high, which is, I think, like our most narrow depiction and our most shameful depiction in this culture. Mm-hmm. And so when I say that, what I want to say is that I actually don't even identify with that description now. I did mm-hmm. when I was younger, but I don't now. And now what I see is is people suffer in, we suffer in particular ways and we find ways to kind of combat that suffering. And that's what I like to talk about. Same. We're totally on the same page. In like what I do, I talk to a lot of people who are like marketing experts and like over and over and again, over the past decade and a half, people will ask like, well, what are you selling? And really what I sell, and this is so unsexy and you will never see it on any of like any like page to sign up for a retreat or my coaching is like, I sell better coping skills. Mm. Like, but it's mm. like, who wakes up in the morning and is like, you know what I need? <laughs> Better coping skills. I, I need to find someone who can teach me better sco- coping skills. No one. No one is is after that. No one's shopping for that. But it's it's true. And it took me it took me a bit to figure out that that's what it is that I teach people. Partly because I had none. My coping skills were like, I'm going to get into this relationship, and this hot guy is going like, <laughs> to take away my suffering, or right. this night out with my friends and too many. Coronas, you know, and tequila chasers is going to end my suffering, or graduating from college with honors is going to end my. I was constantly chasing a way to what, how I describe it as run away from my life. Mm. And by running away from my life, it was just this massive discomfort of being a human, which everyone does. You know, like my daughter's also 13, and like watching your children go through middle school. It's agony. (laughs) It's agony, partly because you remember your own experience. And I remember she was, what did I ask her to do? I, it was something like, okay, we were, okay. We were at like a, a Marshall's and, you know, never go to Marshall's and not grab a cart. Like just, that that was my first mistake. So we're like in the back of Marshall's and I'm like, can you go up and get me a cart? And she was like, no, that's so embarrassing. Oh my God. Your mom? But every when you're 13, 
everything is embarrassing. Like you, it's the invisible audience you think, but I felt like that most of the time, even when I wasn't in middle school, just like this raw nerve of, I had a lot of big feelings and and so does everyone. But I just, I think some people are born with just either they don't, they, they can kind of ignore it or they don't have as big of feelings or they just are better skilled at dealing with them or processing them. And they just don't feel the need to run away from them. Mm-hmm. I think as much as some people do, as much as I did. And uh, I think that some people realize pretty quickly that their coping skills are shit and that they need to find better ones. And some people, it takes us a really long time. For me, it took me a really long time to realize that my coping skills were shit. And I still need to be reminded at 47 years old, I still need to be reminded like that's actually a terrible Andrea, like, you know, and so I just, that, that was a very rudimentary way of explaining how I look at life. Yeah. I think even though it's unsexy, it's funny because I think about this with my daughter right now. And I think about it for myself. Like I felt as though I had, I was trying when I was younger to develop those coping skills. Like how do I, how do I navigate the part of me inside that feels really scared? And like, I'm walking on eggshells all the time because that's how I was raised. Like Mm -hmm. I was raised with a mom that could explode at any time and lock me out of the house and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. How do I how do I start navigating with that little kid inside that's scared? And so for me, I took kind of an intellectual route. You know, I'm going to study all of these different philosophers and mm-hmm. and I'm also writing for me. I have to get into the we haven't ta- even talked about our own writing, which <laughs> is a whole other thing, but writing was really my what I call my through line to the divine. Like I could actually mm-hmm. tap into those places that were suffering and try to like develop some coping skills. But I felt so, I think you're right. There's some of us that feel things in a more acute manner, or we maybe haven't like figured out those skills that can help us when that acuteness gets really bad. I was convinced my feelings were going to kill me. Like they are going to murder me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it sounds dramatic, but like, I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, no, I think that's totally accurate. Like, I I mean, I've heard that heartbreak actually, who was it? Like Wayne Dyer or something. Like the, yeah. the short fibers actually start tearing apart. Mm-hmm. And it. Fe- I think the whole mind-body thing is so true. You feel it physically. And if we don't have a sense of like, what can I do that will really actually be a healthy way to navigate these really intense feelings? then we'll go for what, you know, the cultural prescribed anesthetizers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could talk to you for two more hours, but I do, I have to, I have to be um, cognizant of my listeners time and your time too. Melissa, thank you so much. It's blood orange night, my journey to the edge of madness, Melissa Bond, the link to your book will be in the show notes. Where do you want people to go to find more of you or your other writings or your book? Is it your website or where, where should we send them? Yeah, I would say, so my website is melissaabond.com. I am working on another book. So that info will be up there. And then my Instagram handle is melissabauthor. Yeah, and I follow you. So I, I just thank you so much. And I think that these stories are so, they need to be told because we hear, you know, like the show Intervention. I remember watching that when I was drinking too much and thinking, well, at least I'm not that. 
<laughs> right. you know? right. And I think we need stories like this of, of people who don't identify as an addict who suddenly found themselves prescribed medication that could have killed them and just the difficulty that you were going through at that time. So thank you so much for being vulnerable Gosh, and sharing so your story. And everyone, thank you for listening and and hanging with us throughout this this hour of conversation. I am so grateful for your time. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey, did you know there's free secret podcast episodes waiting for you that are not part of my regular podcast feed? Yes, andreaowen.com slash free. And you just sign up. You get a link sent to you. It's very secret. It's like a secret club. We don't have a secret handshake. Don't worry about that. But it's these motivating podcast episodes that I made for you. They're under 20 minutes each. There's three of them. They're for wherever you are in your life. So head on over there and grab them. They range from really supporting you and seeing you where you are and being compassionate all the way to giving you a giant kick in your ass and telling you how amazing and gorgeous and phenomenal you are. So andreaowen.com slash free and get your hands on that free podcast feed.